Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with trees. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. Welcome to the God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. I'm Bill Swirla. Oh, boy, that stopped suddenly. What? Already a technical difficulty. Yeah, well, no. Was, Five seconds that into was the show. error. That was my twitchy finger, actually. <laughs> <laughs> on, on, on the phone today, we have uh, Dr. Jim Nestingen, which is a rare treat. Well, this is, yeah, this is, this, this, this is God Whispers history, right? As, as right. I always like to say, he's like a Lutheran, but happy. <laughs> <laughs> he, he he is he qualifies as the happiest Lutheran I know. Now I think I think I think part of this part of this may be because because he's not Missouri Synod and he's not German. Well, yeah, you know it's, the German thing is really a problem because even when we Germans are happy, we look like we're about to invade Poland. It it it, it just it always happens. Well, and German just sounds look, angry. Yeah, it does. Even when they're making love, they're making war. In reality, so <laughs> du bist meine Liebchen. <laughs> a little bit of housekeeping. <laughs> Jim's, Jim's already having a great. <laughs> Jim's having a good time over there. It's <laughs> the old joke about Norwegian foreplay. Grace yourself, Lena. <laughs> 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 and 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 here we go. <laughs> he, he fits right in. He'll be fine. He's, he's swimming nicely. Yeah, no, that's it. We just threw him into the deep end of the pool, and he's doing he's doing the backstroke right now. So, uh, a, a little bit of, a little bit of uh, housekeeping here just before we get started. Uh, Craig, uh, if you want to call the God Whispers hotline, the Manly Doctors hotline, yes, it's six two six five nine three seventy seven thirteen or Manly Doctors thirteen Manly. <laughs> Durs 13 is our number. You can leave a message. Yeah. And if you leave a message, we will most likely play it and mock you severely. With, within six months or so. So don't, don't, go, don't go waiting for it. Yeah. Uh, the mothership, godwhispers.org or .com. If your fingers reach in that direction, it'll redirect to .org. But .org will save you about one or two microseconds. And uh, if you want to email us, and I don't know why you would, but in case you want to, uh, it, we are at Godwhispers at gmail.com. What episode number are we on? We are, this is episode 238. And they haven't arrested us yet. And yes, and we're still on the synodical roster, uh, indicating that nobody listens to us. Not and, only and... are we on the synodical <laughs> roster, but we are... Highly placed synodical official. Both of us. As, both as of us. Craig. Craig. Soon to be. Soon to be the 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 
programming czar of uh, KFUO, the official radio station of the Missouri Synod. And Bill, the outsider, is on the Board of Regents for Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, where they have to tell you they're theological, otherwise you won't believe them. (laughs) Well, they have a big Luther statue out front. It's got to be. I mean, that's how you know they're Lutheran. Got a big Luther statue out there. So, yeah, we're... We're, we're both we're both the the outsiders become insiders or inside out or outside in we we don't know and uh, so th- that's kind of exciting I I had occasion just a little backstory here I had occasion to meet uh, uh, Jim at uh, in Kansas City at uh, Doxology uh, Hal Sinkbile and Bev Yankee's uh, little love fest that they do uh, and so the, I, I was the banquet speaker. Did I mention that last week? No, I don't think that you it, did. It, it coincided somewhat with my being the convention essayist. I'm sure I've you talked about what? that. I was. I was a convention what essayist. What did you talk about? Uh, baptized for this moment. I think we talked about in, this. In case or you can't we? tell, uh, Jim, <laughs> Bill won't shut up about these things. <laughs> but they they invited me to be they invited me to the banquet speaker. I, I I which is kind of hazardous because you know I can be I can induce a terrible case of heartburn after a, a heavy. Meal. Meal. And uh, but but I was the banquet speaker, but I had the 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 pleasure of uh, sitting in on a couple of Jim's talks uh, that he gave at uh, at Doxology, and I said, "We've got to have him on the GW here." William, move your head. <laughs> so <laughs> look at the size of that boy's head. Shh. I'm not kidding. It's like an orange on a toothpick. Shh. You're gonna give the boy a complex. Well, that's a huge noggin. It's a virtual planetoid. Has its own weather system. Heat, move. Bill's head gets larger by the minute here. <laughs> so, so of the of the four talks uh, that Jim and by the way, uh, uh, Jim Nessigan is, is doctor, professor, uh, professor, doctor, hair professor, doctor, retired, uh, retired, uh, uh, whatever. He's in a rocking chair as we speak. Uh, uh, he taught at Luther Seminary in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, a, a colleague and close co-worker of Gerhard Ferdy, and uh, taught Reformation history, Reformation studies, along with Lutheran confessions, uh, very well qualified to speak on all matters, Lutheran and Norwegian, and Norwegian, <laughs> more qualified than Garrison Keeler is to speak on things Lutheran and Norwegian. I would say, we, we, welcome, welcome to the show. Lim- imitator. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, now Doctor Nessingen, I, I have to ask a question straight out. Aren't Norwegians supposed to be depressed? Aren't, I <laughs> well, thought that they were all kind of suicidal. Um, Bergen we, kind there of are people that say we have a lot to be depressed about. I mean, <laughs> But it is, we are uh, kind of an odd people who generally do things backwards, and we're particularly, we particularly enjoy humor at our own expense, which is... Um, ah, little self-deprecation. Yeah, we, we just, um, and that's what Garrison Keeler caught on to. I mean, he's been exploiting us shamelessly now for 25, 30 years, and become a millionaire doing it, which... I ought to tell you something about the dearth of the material in Minnesota. He's <laughs> survived him. <laughs> and now he's, now he's going to retire and go away, and we're all real happy about it. We is he, want, is, we're is, longing to return to the to ambiguity and dirt. Is he, is he done? Is he going to be retiring soon? Well, we keep hoping so. Oh. He's <laughs> a couple times. That, you never can tell. That, that's probably what the like, 
I always say, like, he's kind of like a venereal disease. He keeps coming back. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that that's probably what the administration was saying about you in the last few years over at Luther, yeah, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, I use the same analogy, popular as syphilis. <laughs> <laughs> now... Now, now, just to, well, one of the one of the things that I think that characterizes all all of your your the the times that I've heard you speak is is that that sense of of humor and self deprecation and not taking oneself too seriously. Something that we in Missouri right. need to learn a little bit more of. I think I'm just saying. <laughs> but sure. but um, what is it? What is it that brings the, this joy to what you do? Because because that that's the one thing that that stands out when I listen to you is here is a man who truly enjoys talking about what he's talking about and just has this kind of this joy of life as it is under the cross and everything else. I mean, well, yeah, why yeah. are you so happy? <laughs> <laughs> what a question. You know, I grew up in um, an old rural culture in North Dakota that was was um, centered around old men telling stories on park benches in front of stores. And I mean, that's really where I learned to do what I do. And um, in both my mother's family and my father's family, there's kind of an odd sense of humor, a little oblique and strange. And a lot of times, um, you know, I don't find the lecturing. Um, uh, well, I've done it for a long time, and I have to find ways to entertain myself. And while I'm lecturing, and a lot of the humor comes from just plain desperation. I mean, uh, <laughs> hunting, hunting for something to keep myself awake, <laughs> and my and my listeners too. So, if you aren't laughing, you have to. If you aren't laughing, you have to cry. Is it one of those things? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, it's a. It's a lot of fun, and uh, it works. So I've been, and I, I expect that uh, if I really took that question about joy seriously, that I'd have to say that, um, I mean, my whole life theologically has been oriented around the question, well, what is the gospel? I mean, we treat it like it's a preservative, you know, like it's something or a preserve, that it's something that, um, we've got controlled of control of, and I, in my experience, it's, it's always demanding to come home afresh. You know, it, it um, has the character of a strange word that's just a little bit ahead of us, and and all, but dropping back to pick us up. You know, and and I love that. I mean, that's a lot of fun, and I really, I mean, Christ Jesus is the best there is, of course. So. When I <laughs> when I get going with that, boy, I have a lot of fun. Uh, I've I've often uh, used the analogy of the knock knock joke uh, when talking about the gift of holy absolution, because sometimes people will yeah, say, oh, yeah. you know, they'll they'll say, "Well, I'm forgiven. What do I need to hear forgiveness for?" And I said, you know, faith kind of approaches this like a little kid who's just learned a knock knock joke. And we'll tell it fifty times to everybody within earshot, and each time, yep. each time, it's just as funny as the first time. So it's it's a little bit like, <laughs> please, please, I love that. Please tell me the punchline again. It's so funny, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And there is a certain out- outrage that there's this. Oh out- yeah, that's. You know, there's this outrage to the gospel that uh, that that really has the element of a good punchline to it. 
Yeah, that's the truth. I mean, that is really fun. And when you lose that, it goes stale in a big battery, you know. Well, so it's, I mean, we have, there's, I mean, of course, you know, I've grown up with all these old Norwegian jokes, but there's, we always tell about the Norwegian who loved his wife so much once he almost told her, you know, that, <laughs> that I mean, the absolution is the declaration of God's promise, and you literally cannot hear it enough. I mean, it's, it's to hear another person actually say, your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. Or better yet, I forgive you your sins for Jesus' sake. That that's about. Yeah, I mean, you're getting your your ears are in heaven already, and you're getting another a foretaste of things to come to switch organs. So you, I mean, that there that's. I mean, I, I, my deepest fear personally is that I won't hear it. <laughs> I literally sit on the edge of the pew waiting for it every Sunday morning. I mean, and my wife is aware of the urgency, and she speaks to me pretty regularly, too. So, I mean, that, I always think that's, I mean, that's just like breathing. I mean, it's just like words of love from her. I mean, I can't get enough of that. We uh we have this little thing, uh, my wife and I, when when we in the rare moments where we're actually able to sit in the pew next to each other, uh, yeah, yeah. Because well, one one way to guarantee that you hear the gospel is just become a preacher and preach every Sunday, you know, and then at least you yeah. have only yourself to blame if you don't hear the gospel. <laughs> right. But but right. you know, it's it's good to be a hearer once in a while. It's good to it's good to sit in the pew and hear the oh, word yeah. of God and have God speak to you and uh, in a voice that's not your own. But but we we have this little drill and she knows she she just reaches over and she takes one of my hand or touches my hand and if my hand is cold uh, she knows that this is it's not going well you know because the the uh, all, all all every every blood vessel in my body is constricting here and and uh, but if my hand is yeah. warm then then uh, th- things liturgically and homiletically are going quite well so i have an I have, I have, there's a barometer there yeah, i love that i have uh... I mean, you know, I spent a lot of time going to church in the ELCA. Thank goodness that's pretty much over. But it's, but uh, we had some of the same drill, only it involved physical violence. <laughs> she would look over at me and see, and then when she knew it was bad, she would grab my leg and start to squeeze until finally I had... No, no alternative, but to surrender, and if that didn't work, you just went higher, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's a common tactic, actually. I, I, I think wives learn that from the, they, they they learn that from their mothers at a very early age. <laughs> you know, speak, well, it's part of the part of part of the equipment of a pastor's wife. <laughs> Speaking of uh, your your first lecture or your first talk at at doxology, I think was. A address both to the wives and the husbands because this was a uh, an event that brought uh, the couples together which is it was a lot of fun i think it's one of the better uh sessions uh, you get a chance to meet the uh, the women behind the men that you know and a lot of times oh, i, I, yeah, I found the the men are more tolerable uh it, <laughs> you, you you think differently of them after you see the women <laughs> that they're married they to. behave themselves yeah they do <laughs> and, and, and uh, but um 
uh, tell us a bit. You, I, you were you were talking about the Luthers and using the Luthers yep. and their marriage as a template or as a springboard for talking about this business of of being married and and that. Well, of course, uh, the one of the really significant things about um, Luther and Catherine von Bora is that uh, both of them uh, were committed early to monastic life. Um, Catherine was a young girl, uh, Catherine von Bora, her father, you can hear from the von Bora, her father was a wealthy businessman and her mother died, so, so she was, and her father was remarrying, and you know what the chances are in there. I mean, they say it takes a blended family um, at least an additional year to set down, settle down to the normal level, level of conflict in married life. <laughs> normal life. So, uh, <laughs> So in the Middle Ages, they solved that problem by giving those kids the extra children to the a monastery or a convent. And Catherine von Bora was sent away to um, a nunnery at Nimgen, not far from Wittenberg, where she she actually grew up. I think she was I remember right, she was nine when she went there, and she was um, brought up to be the kind of the pharmacist. If you ever read the Brother Tadfell Ministries by Elvis Peters, you know that the um, monasteries and convents were uh, charged with preserving the medical lore of the community, and that was Catherine's job. She she was, uh, you know, Luther said she was one of the best actors she'd ever dealt with, so he didn't think a lot of the profession, so it, <laughs> Not necessarily the highest compliment, but it was. Um, and and Catherine von Bora actually approached Luther with thirteen other nuns to um, to escape from the nunnery. She'd read Luther's on monastic vows and other things against the monastic life, and in order to get away, she had to have help, and so. He made contact with the um, guy who delivered herring barrels to the to the nunnery. They um, uh, Germans and Scandinavians have this much in common love for herring. So <laughs> I love they, herring. Yeah, me too. I'm just crazy about it. So they they hauled in 14 barrels of herring and <laughs> hauled out 14 barrels of nuts. <laughs> Did they clean the barrels out before they put the nuns in? I always say, I always say that Catherine arrived in Wittenberg wearing old herring. <laughs> <laughs> Luther couldn't resist her. <laughs> That's not quite true. I mean, I imagine she smelled like the barrel. Yeah, you know, I'm just thinking about that. You know, 13 nuns arriving at your door one night smelling like herring. This is this is oh. kind of like this is like a Norwegian dream here, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's... <laughs> Luther said, "God, God protect us. God protect us, lest we so that we find husbands less or worse fate people." <laughs> You know, that's not necessarily UPS's dream job. <laughs> I, I, I've i said this before, but I, I love the old black and white Luther movie from the 50s. And oh, yeah. especially the, the one scene when all the nuns are married off and there's there's Katie Von Boris standing there. And, and, you know, the Luther actor looks at her and basically says, what are you looking at? 
like, you know, you think you think I'm next, huh? <laughs> and then wedding well, bills. She, <laughs> she was. I mean, she. Uh, you know, she she was uh, not a uh, uh, candidate for a playmate of the month. I mean, she was. <laughs> She was not much to look at, and um, you know she was kind of sweat and small. Um, so Luther had trouble marrying her off, and he in fact had a had arrangements made for her to marry a nobleman, and the nobleman's family backed out; they wouldn't have her. And so she was she was getting down. He was getting down to literally the bottom of the barrel. I mean, she, she was one of the last two left, and. And he arranged for her to marry somebody else, and and um, Catherine turned him down because he was too old. She said. Luther oh. exploded and said, "Well, then who will you have?" And she said, "You or um, your colleague?" Um, she said, and Nicholas von Hunstorf. and and Luther, who had never, you know, who had apparently thought some of marrying, but had never been on the front burner when she was available, thought to himself, well, maybe I'll do it. And he did <laughs> to make the angels weep and the, or to make the angels laugh and the devils weep. <laughs> I, I heard a, I, I think I read a table talk where Luther says something to the extent of, um, I didn't marry for love. I, I married for theology, or I married to make a theological statement. Lo, love came. No, love came later. He said. <laughs> that's exactly right. That's exactly true. I mean, he married. Um, they married. Um, you know, as part of their uh, part of his criticism, his whole critique of monastic life. And it's really important. I mean, you can't overestimate the significance of this theologically because for the medieval church, you always go someplace else to repent. You know, you go to a monastery or you go to a nunnery or you go on a you know pilgrimage or you go someplace, any place but home. And Luther was convinced that that's phony stuff that genuine repentance happens in the deep relationships of everyday life, and that, in, first of all, is your family. So it was part of his witness, and Catherine von Borel joined him in it. I mean, they married. There was, you know, I mean, the myth of romantic love is stupid and, you know, <laughs> unjust and horrid anyway. I mean, you know, this is the way most people in the world marry. They get married and then they fall in love sometime later. I, I believe the Victorian the Victorians messed us up in that 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 they uh it's the Victorians that introduced romance into marriage when when previously yeah. this this was reserved for your extramarital affairs and things like that. That's no. exact that's where that's where love happened in their mind. <laughs> Again that's when you go someplace else. <laughs> you know, well, there you have I mean, it. That's right. I mean, when you think when you think about marriage, I mean, when you just think about it, I mean, and just look at what happens in marriage. I mean, talking about love is ridiculous. I mean, you know, I mean, I always like to joke that marriage is a, a long-term, low-grade hostility punctuated by moments of intense passion. <laughs> I mean, it's just for for most people, I mean, mar- you know. I mean, you lay there with someone that you desperately love and can't stand. 
There's there's paradox right there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, so, 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 you know, love happens over the long term as you, you know, your edges get rounded off and you, you know, you get shaped to one another and you're, you become habitual, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, Inertia builds up. I mean, that's, you know, and finally you realize, oh, I couldn't live without her, you know. I, I was just thinking biblically, uh, when you look in scriptures and you see the kind of romantic love that we talk about, the passion and everything, it, it tends to kind of go off the rails pretty quick. I, I think immediately oh, David yeah. and Bathsheba, you know, and, yeah, sure. and uh, that, that, that didn't start out very well uh no <laughs> well, well it started no, no. it started out with great passion though see that's that's the thing right there was romance there was passion there that, was that's lust what I'm saying. how did it end no. she's scheming to get her son and she's she's just working behind you know he's dying and and they've got they got so they they're trying to hook him up with some young nurse to make him feel better and and she's conniving in the background <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, any, anybody that thinks that David just happened to be up there on the roof um, is deluded. Or, <laughs> I mean, or, or that every, Bathsheba every... just happened to be up on the roof. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, this was... This was lust made in heaven, you know. You know, th- th- this this kind of reminds me of every once in a while I go over to the neighbor's house and just look out the window at the windows facing my house just to check the line of sight, you know, because I I, I, I I have a tendency not to dress all that much, in, you know, at home, and I I just want to make sure that I'm not flashing the neighbors inadvertently. <laughs> Bill's, Bill's a nudist at home. But, oh yeah, no, I'm I'm very uncomfortable in clothing most of the time. But but uh, but you got to know that Bathsheba knew the line of sight. Oh gosh, yes, and you got to know that. Everybody in the neighborhood knew when she took a bath that David wasn't the only one. I never really thought about the exhibitionist uh, angle of Bathsheba there. Absolutely. <laughs> and not only that, you know, another thing, another thing people don't think about in this story is how many people know. Because if you look, they never talk directly to each other, and they don't have Facebook. So, so, so David sends word to Bathsheba, and then she comes to the palace. Alice, and then when she figures out she's pregnant, she sends word to David. Somebody's got to carry the word. Everybody knows this. They're talking about it in the palace kitchen. Oh, they, I mean, of course. I mean, this is a small town. I mean, <laughs> golly. I mean, you, you don't keep secrets. I mean, this is. <laughs> so, so, so let me ask I mean, you. If you... Let, me, let, let me ask you, Jim. Um, do you think that Uriah knew? You know, I tend to think of Uriah as as a kind of an innocent. I mean, um, I mean, any anybody that got leave and went home and left his wife alone, you know, that's. I mean, that's kind of strange behavior for a soldier. I mean, that he's going to keep his instrument holy. I mean, that's that that's just kind of weird. I mean, I I've dealt with a lot of soldiers. Soldiers. I mean, when they they're like loggers. When they go home, you better watch out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and and I'm thinking the more things change, the more they stay the same. Also, you you hear uh, all these stories. I've got some friends that are naval chaplains and and whatnot. But uh, you know, the soldiers, sailors go off on deployment, 
and the wife stays behind right. and plays, and, and they're deployed for six months to come home and find their wife three months oh. pregnant. And, yeah, exactly. You know, so, I mean, golly. Yeah, so it's it's not a new story where uh, uh, Uriah goes off, he's, he's deployed, and, and then he comes back, and uh, things aren't yeah. quite all kosher around well, the house here. You also have... No, no, he's, he discovers that, um, <laughs> you know, she's in the family way um, in his absence. I mean, that's got to be part of the story. I mean, gee... I mean, and what's so incredible? I mean, it's a typical biblical narrative where it's just been, you know, from the Holy Spirit to us, and it's been owned by all this retelling. There's not a word out of place. It's just perfect. <laughs> I love it. Well, uh, Jim, we got to take a break, and we'll be right back after this break. Right here. Okay. In other words, hold my hand. Famous God Whispers. Do you think that uh, this was playing in the background when David was checking out Bathsheba on the rooftop? <laughs> you, you, you sexy thing. <laughs> I, I had a residue thought from the first half David hour. Was, David was searching frank, frantically for his Viagra. <laughs> <laughs> look, look, looks like that wasn't a problem for him there. I, 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 no, no, I don't think it was a problem. I, I, I had this residual thought from the first half hour of uh, soldiers and loggers coming, coming, especially loggers coming home with wood. It, it just took on a whole new yeah. dimension for me that I, I, I was thinking, and, and it was it was more than just for the fireplace. So, <laughs> you know, I, I just I just realized that I'm not on issues and answers. <laughs> that, that's right. <laughs> we we had to uh, one of our famous moments of, of many episodes ago. This is years ago now. Is we had Reed Lessing uh, in studio with us, and and he was just talking about his new. Uh, then a uh, the new commentary on Jonah in the uh, Concordia commentary oh, series. Uh, and, sure. and we got him going on, on all the insulting ways in which the Old Testament 
uh, describes the false gods, the gods of the nations, and all the derogatory oh, terms. Fun. And uh, we it, it took him a little, it took us a little bit of coaxing to get him to give us a literal translation of Gilulim, uh, which uh, then then uh, provoked the first ever homeschooler alert. Uh, exa- Attention! <laughs> the following segment contains a homeschooler alert. Attention! The following segment contains a home schooler alert. Now, we, 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 we invented that to protect the children, but we've since found out uh, from correspondence that many children now view this as a signal to come into the room and listen. So <laughs> they gather around the speakers. I love those kids. <laughs> the, those are the good ones. <laughs> you know, they're the ones you want. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, may, may their tribe increase. So, um, thirsty, my friends. <laughs> Back to the Luthers and uh, and their household. Uh, what 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 can you tell us about life in the Luther household that that might uh, well, give us was... pause for thought here in our households? Well, one of the great things that happened right off of that was uh, Frederick the Wise, um, who was delighted with their marriage, gave them uh, the Black Cloister, the monastery in which Luther had lived, which had been abandoned by the monks Luther and a friend of his were the only ones living there at that point. And so the the elector, Frederick the Wise, said, you can have it. And so Luther and Catherine von Bora moved into the Black Cloister, and it was like a small college dormitory with um, any number of rooms and facilities um, for large uh, gatherings and Luther had his office there. He had his classroom there. He had um, that was a major building of the University of Wittenberg. His house was there. He had uh, Catherine was um, one of those extraordinarily efficient people, uh, just who worked like a trooper and who was organized right to the bottom. All is in order, and she. She um, organized the house to facilitate the work that was happening. Luther had any number of international visitors um, who came to see him, and they all stayed at the house. Um, There were any number of students that went through um, his classrooms from various parts of Europe. They lived in the Black Cloister as a dormitory. Um, they had um, other professors um, who came by. That, they were often there at supper time, including Phil Melanchthon, who lived <clears throat> right around the corner. Um, it's, a, it's a real interesting relationship between them. Um, Barbara Melanchthon was uh, not much of a housekeeper, and Catherine <laughs> von Borel was always disgusted with her. <laughs> I, I didn't know. I didn't know Philip was married. Yeah, oh, yeah, he was married. Yeah, he was married. And his wife's name was Barbara. Barbara. And kind of and kind and of a slob and kind of a slob, huh? She, she, was, <laughs> you know, she was. I mean, she was one of those academic women whose hair flies naturally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you think of your I 
ideal dreamer I am. There you got it. <laughs> I, I'm thinking of how many Lutherans leave the Lutheran church when they get married because they'll marry some fun to girl and they'll end up at a charismatic yeah. church oh, or something God. like that. So I'm kind of wondering if she's the one that, that polluted Melanchthon. <laughs> you could ask. She I mean, she dragged him she to the was, to the uh, Calvary she, she Chapel. Just drove, she just she <laughs> drove Catherine von Bora nuts, and so Catherine von Bora hired a servant and sent him over there to keep house for her. <laughs> wow! Oh, nice. <laughs> lots of, lots of fun. Anyway, the the um, in order to provide for all of those guests and all the people living in the house, uh, Catherine had to. Um, you know, develop her skills. Um, she and when she they inherited the black oyster, she got the brewing license for the city. There you go. And so she um, started making beer almost right away when they moved in. Uh, Luther claimed that her beer was medicinal <laughs> and that um, it was the best beer in the community. And he, they were able, the two of them were able to convince the city fathers. Um, to ban dumping garbage in the Elbe River on Tuesdays because on Tuesdays uh, Catherine drew water to make her beer. <laughs> Only on Tuesday. Oh, it wow. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's the fact she that it's only also... Tuesdays that scares me. So Wednesday, dump whatever you want, right? But Tuesdays, yeah. kind of give the river a break for Catherine. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, and then she was also she was also a, made very fine wine, which Luther bragged about equally and consumed in equal quantity. <laughs> but she, um, so then they, and so then she has uh, um, she had a a, a, cow, or a, a a pond in the back where she she raised fish. So she was a fish farmer. And then she started um, expanding her gardens, and finally she bought a farm down in the city of Zulsdorf, which is south of Wittenberg, and she um, she ran that farm and produced pretty much everything they needed to feed all of the company that they were having at the Black Oyster. So Luther had all kinds of fun about that. He called her Lord Kate of Zulsdorf, and you know, her Kate and Keta, the German word for chains, Andre made such a like, so sometimes it was Lord Chains of Zolzorf. And he, I mean, he, um, he admired her greatly for her great skill and organization, but he also um, uh, kept up a good banter with her all the time. And she could handle that. I mean, one of my favorite stories of Luther is his health um, fell apart in the late 20s, um, and then again in 1531. And so they were married in 1525, and they were just starting, you know, they all they were dropping one baby a year. And so she had the, her hands full with all the kids, and then when Luther's health went bad, why well, she had him to look after, and of course, all his life, he, I mean, he had just horrible work habits. You know, he would he would go into his office and disappear for 72 hours at a crack, um, live without sleep and, you know, with minimal food and just work continuously that whole time. 
and then he'd come out of his office and fall fall into bed in the in the cowl befouled with sweat, as you like to say. And then he would sleep and get up and go again, you know. So it was hard for her to handle all of that with all the kids and everything like that. And then also he was very much subject to depression. Well, once he disappeared into his office and he he didn't come out for several days and he came out and found Catherine and all the children dressed in black. And he said to her, uh, Katie, who has died? She said, God has died. And Luther exploded and said, this is impossible. God cannot die. And Catherine Van Bora said, then why are you behaving as though he's dead? We haven't seen you for all of these days. <laughs> she, she just gave it to him. So, you know, she was fully capable of handling herself um, in relation to him and handling him as well. Here's another of my favorites. When yeah, in the last days of his life, in the 1540s, um, Luther spent most of his time in court contending with lawyers who were, you know, um, upset about Potter making complaints about property divisions in the Reformation. And so he he just hated lawyers. I mean, he, he said a, a lawyer's virtue is like a donkey's fart. An explosion without any significance. <laughs> <laughs> Full of sound and fury signifying nothing. <laughs> yeah, I think that. That's, that's nice. <laughs> but he was, he was called to mediate the big conflict between some feuding nobles over in Eisleben. Um, he did a lot of that, and he went over to... Um, he took Justice Jonas and a couple of his sons, and he went over to... Um, I and by this time he was desperately, you know, his health was just practically gone, and Catherine Bambora was worried, sick about him. So there's a beautiful letter that he wrote to her when he got to Iceland. He writes to her, Dear Catherine, we arrived safely. Thanks to all of your anxiety, a brick fell out of the, a wall when we were riding by. If you were worried a little bit more, it would have hit me instead of the wagon. <laughs> so it's you know it's just it's a it's a I mean Luther always said that your spouse is God's face to you that is the the one through whom God is working to shape you in repentance and to raise you in faith and and so he you know you can hear in that phrase um, his profound love for her which had grown up through all kinds of struggles, you know, through over the years. They were married 1525, he died in 1546, so they just had 20 years, you know, so 21 years together. But they loved one another dearly, um, and although they never let each other off the hook either, so that's <laughs> lots I, of fun. That's, that's probably part of loving one another dearly, is never letting each other off the hook. Uh, you know, oh, it, I think that's right. It, your description yeah. reminds me again of the doxology couples because you you know you, there there are a number of uh, of, uh, my, of myself included sort of the rather uh, egotistical Lutherans that uh, 
that are kind of known around and and then you meet the women behind them and and it's a little bit like the guy next to the king that was to whisper in his ear thou art a man and not a god you know they they yeah. uh, they, they have a, a wonderful way of bringing their husbands back to uh back yeah. to both feet on the ground which i think makes them yeah. more enjoyable to be around I, I had in my. Oh, I think it's great. Although I wish that my wife didn't enjoy it quite as much. <laughs> <laughs> nor, nor mine. <laughs> and, <laughs> I, and I can attest she to. She throws herself into that vocation. <laughs> absolutely, with, with great zeal. Oh, uh, and I can attest to Paula's wife and the or Paula's wife, uh, Craig's wife, the same way. Paula, uh, she she does she does a nice job of of. Uh, of uh, keeping well, Craig well. in line. Well, actually, Paula yeah. reminds me that Bill is not a god. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> you, you mentioned you mentioned their their tribulations. One one of the things that came up recently in our congregation with the the death of an infant uh, was uh, oh, yeah. Luther. Luther, I believe, had six kids, uh, but but yeah. not all of them grew to adulthood, right? Right. One of them. Um, Magdalena was his, his daughter, uh, died when she was about 14. She was named after um, uh, Catherine von Bora's aunt, who came to live with the family and, you know, was uh, one of the crucial people in the household. And Magdalena has all of the gifts. And, you know, I mean, including um, Luther's pure voice. I mean, he had a, he, um, Roland Baton swore up and down that Luther could sing alto. Um, he had such an extensive range in his tenor that he could sing the alto notes. And he, um, and his voice was uh, characteristically quite pure. And so, I mean, one of the great things in the Luther household was all the singing. I mean, they were—they just, I mean, the the Bach brothers, they down in in Eisleben, Eisenach, those guys uh, specialized in long and extremely gross puns, which they or uh, lyrics, which they sing back and forth to one another. But, <laughs> Luther's Luther's family was just a little more pious, I guess, <laughs> in some ways anyway. But they the singing was just fabulous, and they um, and so when Magdalena died, they you know when she got sick, Luther was and Catherine von Bora too. They were just practically beside themselves, and he, I mean, when when she died. Um, I mean, of course, Catherine, like lots of women, could conceal her grief, but Luther wore it on her sleeve, on his sleeve, and I mean, he nearly lost himself over in her death. I mean, it was just devastating for him. So, uh, you know, she was such a lovely girl, and you know that voice of hers just captivated him. So. <laughs> it's just about as sad as it gets, and it it is very helpful to. I mean, you know, losing, uh, they say that the worst form of grief in the whole human community is the loss of an adult child who's become a companion to the parent. Mm. But losing a, losing a young child like that, you know, is, I mean, it's, I mean, ter- it's tearing your heart out grief, you know, where you just, 
can hardly get over it. You know, every day you get up and face the emptiness, and every day you think about the loss. I mean, it's just vicious. How how were Martin and Katie as parents? I I know that uh, Martin had written letters to his children at at times, and some of them are very sweet, very dear letters. Oh yeah, oh like the letters, the, like the letter he wrote to Hans when he was down the down at um, you know on his way to Augsburg and had to stop off because he couldn't go all the way. He sat and wrote. He was all alone in those days, and he was living in a, in a hotel and was worried, sick about what was happening in Augsburg, convinced that Melanchthon would betray everything, and writing, writing, writing all the time. And then he sat and wrote the most beautiful letters to his son, Hans, <laughs> you know, imagining him. He was Im- Im- imagining a, a little park where they could play on wooden horses and so forth. It's just fabulous. Um, he was... Um, I mean, I'm afraid he's not a very good model for us guys at that point, though, because he was so absorbed in his work that he really, um, I mean, he left all of the child-rearing to um, Catherine Von Bora. She was, I mean, she was great at it, but, I mean, he was up to his armpits in work and, you know, um, didn't have the time he should have had for the kids. Well, did they they homeschool? Yeah, for sure. Well, they had, you know, I mean, you know, the developing curriculum at the time. I mean, Melanchthon was the founder, you know, that's about all he thought about for many years was curriculum stuff. And so they had one of the world's great Latin Latin teachers just around the corner and they had, um, they had opportunities. I mean, there were, the students were living in the house and they helped with school and I mean, there was obviously no public school system at the time, so they—that's yep, how it happened—was by tutoring. So, so they actually had the all the elements of a of a true classical education kind of right there at their doorstep. Well, the Reformation, you know, is—I um, mean, we tend to think of it always in terms of its theological significance, but the Reformation was also a revolution in education. And the whole German curriculum, the whole the whole system of education came out of the Lutheran Reformation, and Melanchthon was the guy that designed the whole business. That, that was his biggest interest. He was a theologian more by avocation, and, you know, not the best in the world at that, but he was... He was uh, one fabulous educator, and so the recovery of Latin, the recovery of Biblical Greek, the recovery of, of Biblical Hebrew, I mean, all of that comes out of the humanist reform, and Melanchthon was up to his arms in it. I mean, that's the way he did it. Was it was this the time where they were going to the trivium, or...? or... Sure. Yeah. Sure, they were—I mean, they were— Doing the, the the conviction of the humanists was that everything since the um, you know since the ancient Greeks and Latins had been going downhill, and so the goal of their goal as educational reformers was to go to the ancient forms to recover them and in all their purity, and to set them up so they could get back to the headwaters of education and really you know reestablish. Um, Christian learning. And that was, my goodness, that's one of the great successes of the Reformation, and it held 
you know, into the 20th century for sure. So they were, so Luther was a teacher and Catherine von Bora, you know, um, uh, was in, instrumentally involved with the kids, but so were a whole host of other people living in the house. You uh, have a lot of knowledge about Catherine von Bora. We we have a good friend who's involved with the Katie Luther Opera. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. Ah, uh, wow. Who else involved with this? Lori and... Uh, Lori uh, Lewis, uh, Dr. Paul Schreiber, uh, who was... Uh, Formally, he he actually wrote the I think the he he wrote the 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 narrative uh, from which this opera was conceived. Um, Is and, that right? Yeah, yeah. And they they've actually they're they're just premiering it very soon. Uh, they have currently eight Katies that are going to be traveling all over the country. One of them is from the Metropolitan Opera, and it, it's a pretty big deal. But Gosh, their goal is. For the 500th anniversary to uh, perform it in Wittenberg and do a live simulcast, which would be really cool. But uh, a lot of what you're talking about with Katie is just really fascinating along those same lines because they've done so much yeah, work on, on Katie and her ways. When I was, when I was a pup, I spent um, some years working for Oxford Publishing House in Minneapolis as a book editor curriculum editor and book editor and one of the uh, books I edited was by Roland Bainton called Women of the Reformation and um, he was in his last years at Yale and he was a lovable old curmudgeon. He was more fun and he would come to town and he and I would spend hours together working on those on his stuff on Catherine Von Bora and I just fell in love with that guy, you know. I, I don't trust him theologically. But he, <laughs> he, I mean, he knew every anecdote and he, he the whole a, history of human thought. I mean. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't a Lutheran, was he? No, no, he was a Quaker. Yeah, that's what I thought. Oh, the, 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 the Luther biographer was a, was a Quaker? Yeah. For, you know, for, the, for my money, most, I, I, I really like James... Biography. I like James Kittleson's uh, Luther the Reformer for just a simple oh, one, yeah. one volume. Uh, he, he was a character, yeah, too. I think that. Yeah, we were office mates. He, had his, he and I had our offices right next door to one another. Oh, seriously? You, <laughs> you, you, you and James Kittleson? Yeah, it was, that was a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had more fun than legal, you know. <laughs> <laughs> We kept that whole building hopping, and not everybody was happy about it either. I can tell you that. <laughs> well, <laughs> the the other name associated with this Luther, uh, this Katie Luther opera, is Glenn Winters. He, That's he it. he's the he's the guy who uh, wrote the music for it. And uh, oh, is that ever fun? Yeah, oh, I can hardly wait. That'll be great. Sort of one one woman oh. show. It's 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 an all Katie all the time kind of uh, a Katie Palooza, oh, if gosh. you will. So we're we're yeah, uh, we're excited about that. Oh, I love it. What uh, what what can uh, you know, what can young married couples uh, take away, take away from the example and the lessons of the Luthers and and their life uh, together? Well, I think one of the first things is to demythologize all the bunk on TV and um, you know in literature now about married love. I mean, most of it is trash and um, the. Uh, it's trashy not 
because of any sexual descriptiveness. It's trashy because it makes assumptions about the human heart that are inappropriate. I mean, when you when two people marry, you're putting two sinners belly to belly for a lifetime. And there is, I mean, there will be love and there will be passion and there will be joy and there will be delight, but there will also be hostility and meanness and... You know, she looks at that guy who's laying farting in bed, and he looks at her and thinks, good Lord, things have dropped, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, you know, it's, I mean, there's just, it's just the kind of stuff that you expect from sinners. So if you, I mean, I always think one of the best things about the old hymnal that, that we used in the ALC was in the marriage at service, it said, even though, um, uh, God does not abandon this holy estate, <laughs> and you could sometimes wonder if He hasn't. So, it's, if you start with your feet on the ground, I mean, if you start with, you know, recognizing the chances you're taking and recognizing that, you know, that the good Lord is going to have to keep the gospel ready at all times so that you can live in the forgiveness of sin. I mean, then. Then you get past all the bunk, and you, you know, and then as you, you know, grow together, then a profounder love sets in. Gee, many Christmas, where the rejoice in one another, enjoy one another's company. I mean, shoot, my wife and I have been married 45 years, and we spend, you know, about 12 to 14 hours a day together, (laughs) and it's still fun. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> she should have killed me a long time ago. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's right. We're surprised we're talking to you even here today. But, yeah, right. yes. I mean, this is high risk activity. <laughs> <laughs> I always, I always, pre- I preface every wedding sermon with with the uh, the sentence: "You you two have no idea what you're getting into." That's exact. No, no kidding. No, that's exact. And when when I think, you know, when I about when we were courting. And when I think about what I thought of her then and what she is, I just I just think, and she's just a miracle. I mean, I just can, can't get over it. And here we are after all these years together, and, you know, I mean, we still enjoy one another. <laughs> I mean, this, is, this is where we've got to wrap great. it up for today, uh, Dr. Nessigan, but thanks so much for being with us. And uh, oh, I'm delighted. Glad to do it. Next time I'll try to get a phone that works. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing new here. We'll catch you next time on the yeah. God Whispers. God be you. Nice to talk to you. He's one who will never leave you flat. Just have to keep 
knocked him out clapping, but not me. I was brought up right. My pa used to tell me, shut up, and I'd shut up. I wouldn't say nothing. One time, down near stopped to death. Wouldn't tell him I was hungry. I like your style, dude. The Beatles needed the Rolling Stones. Even Diane Sawyer needed Katie Couric. Will you be my Katie Couric?